Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Empowered Living. So turning your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Heavenly Places. Most people in the industrialized and materialistic world, something that some like to call the first world or the wealthy world, that part of the world that controls the wealth of the world. I mean, if you live in that part of the world, chances are you also live with a very materialistic mindset. Now, that doesn't sound very shocking. And when I say that if you live in a wealthy country, the chances are that you have a materialistic mindset. I'm not saying the more money you have, the more you think about money. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, I'm saying that the wealthy countries, as a general rule, the richer the nations, the more materialistic they are. And by materialistic, I mean that they are more likely to see the physical observable universe or nature or the material particles that can be scientifically studied, that these things are the ultimate explanation of all things and that these things are the only things worth serious study. See, when I was a seminary student, I remember sitting in a seminary class studying the Gospels. My professor was lecturing on the matter of demon possession, and he said, well, we live in a scientific era, and we now have the scientific tools which help us understand that it's not demon possession after all, it's mental illness. The way he said it indicated that any educated student in his class would surely agree with him. I mean, only the ignorant would still hold to the old concept, and that's what I mean when I talk about materialism. You know, I've just begun a study of the book of Ephesians, a study I've called Empowered Living, and I've said that this is a study about helping Christians understand that vast resources are theirs in Christ and how to practically live within those resources. No believer in Jesus should live a barren spiritual life. We should access our resources. That, at least in my estimation, is a key theme in Ephesians. Well, that was my introduction, but today we're getting into the passage, and today I'll be looking at verse 3 and a bit of verse 4. And I'll read them shortly, but before I do, let me point out that if you're looking at Ephesians, and if you're reading it in the original language in which the book was written, uh, you would immediately notice that verse 3 all the way through to verse 14 is but one long, complex sentence. If you're reading it in the way it was written, you might almost imagine Paul speaking in which he's full of wonder at the resources we have in Christ, and he's speaking without taking a breath, not even stopping, but, you know, pouring out words like a flood. Now, various Bible teachers have tried to explain what we're reading by using a variety of metaphors, like an overture at an opera that contains a number of melodies that are all wound together, written into one. Another Bible teacher wrote, we enter into this letter as through a magnificent gateway. It's a golden chain of many links or a kaleidoscope of dazzling lights and shifting colors. Another teacher said it was like an eagle rising higher and higher, wheeling around and around. And still another said it's like a snowball tumbling downhill, picking up volume as it goes. Well, whatever metaphor one uses, Paul begins the letter of Ephesians with a hymn of praise to God in which he packs into one sentence so many concepts and pictures and realities of the life of Christ that were left in amazement and then saying, what did he just say? Can I hear all of that again? And of course, there it is in print. 
and we're going to have to either read it again and again, which is recommended, but also we're going to have to go through it as slowly as we can, trying to grasp it. But when we do, it'll be overwhelming. So for our purposes, we're only going to read the first two verses in this long 12-verse sentence. Ephesians 1, 3-4 begins the sentence. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Well, that's already a mouthful, so let's begin to break it down. Notice how Paul begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul begins with an outburst of praise to God. Blessed be God. Paul's letting us know that if we're going to consider our spiritual resources, if we're going to understand what God has given every single believer, we're going to have to begin this study in worship. Blessed be God. To God alone belongs all the glory for all the riches that believers have received. We didn't procure any of the spiritual resources we have. All of them were given by God. And so you can't start a study on your resources in Christ without first opening up in worship. And that's the thing about good theology. It's never simply an exercise in thought. If your theology doesn't bring you to your knees with eyes moist and hands raised, pouring out anthems of praise to God, well, you're not doing theology at all. So let's start with Paul. Blessed be God. To God alone be the glory. He receives the credit for the rich bounty of blessings we have received. Now then, when worshiping God, it's so important that we do not worship the God of the Athenians. You remember, with all the gods and goddesses in that city, they still had one more statue to an unknown God. They they were just covering their bases. Christians never think of God in those terms. We worship the one true God who has revealed himself. We're not left in a darkened room trying to grope our way through to God, listening to what every theologian and prophet and preacher and sage has to say about God. See, when we talk about God, we only have one being in mind. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We mean then that the only true God is the one who in the fullness of time has revealed himself as a trinity. The Father is often referred to as God. The Son, Jesus, is often referred to as Lord. And often in the First Testament, God is called the Lord God, Yahweh God. And by calling Jesus Lord, we're referring to him as Yahweh. By saying that God the Father is the Father of our Lord, it's not saying that there are two gods, one being the dad and the other being the kid. Rather, as a father and a son share the same genetic material, so also the father and the son share the same substance. They are of one essence. The father and the son, although two distinct persons, yet are of one essence, the essence of the one God. I know that takes time to come to terms with, but the point here, as Paul calls for praise to God, is that the Christians in Ephesus who read this letter would never be in danger of confusing their God with the many temples of gods and goddesses in their city. And that's the lesson for us as believers. When we talk about God, we're not talking about the divine spirit or the great creator or the father of humanity, although God is all of those things. But we do not talk about God in the way that the world does. 
We do not worship a vague concept of God. We worship the one true God who sent his only begotten son into the world. That God is the only God we know. You know, someone might object and say, look, God was never addressed that way in the First Testament. There he's called the God of Abraham or the God of Israel or the God who is enthroned above the cherubim. And if these are all proper names of God, why must you then insist on this designation as the matter in which all Christians identify God? Well, the answer to that, if you think about it, should be clear. The only thing we can objectively know about God is that which he has chosen to reveal about himself. Now, we also know that for his wise purposes, God chose to reveal himself progressively. Over time, he chose to reveal one attribute after another. If anyone chose to deny what God revealed of himself in a given hour, in effect, they were denying all that God had revealed about himself before. And if in the end, he chose to reveal himself as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then to deny that is to deny God himself. And all that to say, to deny his revelation about himself is to deny God. Christians do not pray to a nameless or to an ill-defined God. Yeah, of course, God is greater than human thoughts. But the revelation of God that has come to us is not the product of human thoughts. Rather, it's what God has disclosed. Our worship of God is not true worship if we do not use the title for God that he has used for himself. Well, of course, up to now, we've not yet dealt with the main point of these two verses. God is to be praised because he has blessed us, his people, with every spiritual blessing. And in just a little while, I want us to revel in the wonder of that. Of course, we're going to have to define what these blessings are. But please notice here that God has not blessed us in some ways or that God has blessed us with many spiritual blessings. Rather, here's the stunner. There is not one spiritual blessing in the heavenly places which God has not given to all his people. Yeah, if you're in Christ, you're lacking nothing. In the spring of 2022, we have an exciting ministry vacation event designed just for you as we extend an invitation to journey with us for the Back to the Bible Canada's Israel experience. Travel to the Holy Land and experience many of the locations where Jesus, Paul, David, and so many others walked. Visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, Capernaum, and David's Royal Palace. Visit the Garden Tomb and and sail the Sea of Galilee as we worship together. Enjoy on-location Bible teaching with Dr. Neufeld and be encouraged and share in the laughter with Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway. Experience all Israel has to offer with an intimate group of Christian friends. Don't miss this wonderful limited registration opportunity to visit the Holy Land and be inspired and refreshed in your walk with Jesus. For more information, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. I pointed out that our text says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Not one blessing is missing. 
Paul says to believers the reason why we need to worship God is that he has not withheld one single blessing from us. Indeed, he has, out of his abundance, given us every blessing. Now, we might want to stop here and say, I don't feel that way. Well, I can tell you a lot of blessings that I would love to have, but I don't have them. You know, I've asked God for them, but up till now, they've not shown up. Aha, but there's a caveat. You have every spiritual blessing, not every material blessing. I know you, being the product of a rich country, have difficulty seeing the value of something that's not material, but it's spiritual. And so we think of the blessing of good health or of good family or of a good job and of a good outcome so that we can be sustained comfortably. You know, most of the prayers we offer to God for blessings that we think that we lack are all the blessings that occur in the material, physical realm. And so it's only right to ask Paul, I mean, what are the spiritual blessings of which you speak? To which he would answer, and indeed, he has already answered right here in this text. Ah, I'm speaking about those blessings that are yours in the heavenly places. So let's be clear. The blessings that are overflowing to every single born-again child of God are not material, they're spiritual. In other words, God has given you great spiritual riches, but they're not centered here, they are in heavenly places. It was C.S. Lewis who said that many of our disappointments stem from the fact that we seek earthly comfort. Earth, he said, has no comfort to give. There are either heavenly comforts or there are no comforts at all. Some of us have never seen the value of spiritual blessings. We give our lives for this earth. We build wealth and safety and success here. But when the yawning gates of eternity open for us, we find we have nothing of value laid up for that day. You know, Jesus put it this way, Matthew 6, 19 to 20, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth or rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. See, God does not promise us no harm in this life, but he does want us to see something of greater value than material physical blessings. And why? Well, the things that look most permanent are only a mist. They're a vapor. The things that cannot be seen, those are the eternal realities. When tragedy strikes, that becomes most apparent. You see, there's a spiritual realm that determines earthly events. When the book of Ephesians mentions the heavenly realms, this phrase is repeated five times in this book. Well, the first occurrence is here, but let's look at the other places where that's found. The second place is in Ephesians 1, 19 to 21. It speaks about the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So here we see that the place of Christ's authority is in the heavenly realms. This encompasses the entire supernatural realm of God, his complete domain or the full extent of his divine operations. No place can be higher. No title can be greater than the one that's given there. The heavenly realms are the realms of God's right hand, his place of power, the place from where his decrees come. Now, the third place where the heavenly realms are mentioned are in Ephesians 2, verse 6, where it speaks of our regeneration. That is, where it speaks of the new nature that we've been given as believers. We were raised with Christ, says Paul, and then speaking of God's actions and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
And so the heavenly places are those places that are right beside Jesus, where Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. The fourth place is found in Ephesians 3, verse 10, where it says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And here's where it gets really interesting, for here we get a twofold sense of the use of that phrase, the heavenly places. First of all, the church plays a vital role in that realm. And secondly, there are numerous rulers and authorities in that realm. Paul undoubtedly has in mind there are both good and evil authorities there. There are angels and there are demons. And so the heavenly places is not just one place. It refers to places. Yeah, there is one heavenly place where God occupies his throne of authority, but there are other heavenly places, spiritual places, where demons rage against God's rule. And that brings us to the last use of the phrase, the heavenly places, in Ephesians 6 verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So then, what is meant by the phrase the heavenly places? Well, the heavenly places are the spiritual places, the spiritual realm, and it is also the place of a great spiritual warfare between righteousness and wickedness. Revelation 12, 7 to 8 says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, and he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Now, just to get technical, there's, there's a difference between the heavenly places and heaven. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. Revelation tells us that Satan has been banished from God's presence, and so the activity of Satan, that is his hatred and his evil, is felt in the realm of human affairs. So even though Westerners don't often understand this, it is true that many of the profoundly evil things that occur on this earth occur because of the spiritual warfare that's now being fought in the heavenly places. There is a being whose name is Satan. Jesus believed in him and taught about him. Jesus called him the father of lies. He said he was a murderer from the beginning. He inspires wars and stands behind great human conflicts. His work on earth brings about a cry of woe to the inhabitants of the earth in the book of Revelation. He has a host of angels following after him called demons. Together, they have a great effect on this world. They lend their power to and inspire human hearts to do great works of evil. There is today a great war in the heavenlies. And it's not only terrorist suicide bombers who make up the fight. It's you and I as well. For every choice that places self ahead of God, every outlook of life that denies God his central place in the universe and in our lives, that is a choice for Satan. This is the spiritual reality in all of our lives. See, what's fascinating about Ephesians 1 verse 3 is that in this place of spiritual reality, of the heavenly realms. It's right there that God has blessed his people with every spiritual blessing. You see, the spiritual realm is not just the realm of a great warfare between good and evil. The heavenly places are also the places of Christ's great triumph on the cross. When Jesus was nailed to a Roman cross, that act, that crucifixion of the Son of God, that was the ultimate act of terrorism not terrorism against men and women. It was intended terrorism against God. 
but it is within this world of warfare that God has blessed his people. When good faces evil, when it seems the outcome of so many lives hang in the balance, here's the good news. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has blessed his people in the heavenly places to such a degree that not one blessing that could be given us there is missing. So practically, what does all of that mean? Well, look at the last half of verse 4, and here's the promise, that we will in the end be holy and blameless before him. That is to say, we will in this life be engaged in a great spiritual struggle. Our holiness is at stake. Whether or not we will be faithful to the Lord our God is at stake. The demons and Satan himself are arrayed against us to take us down and to drag us into the abyss. We are fighting these battles even if we don't know it. And so to say, God has so blessed his people that regardless of the battles they may undergo, nothing they need to be all that God has designed them to be will be missing from their lives. The war may rage on, but for believers in Christ, the outcome was never in doubt, not for a moment. We will be presented before God in the end without blame. And why is that? Because God has not withheld one spiritual blessing from us that can be given to us in the heavenly places. Thanks, John. You know, I think there's a lot of us, in fact, I would have been one, who read the Bible looking for the path of least resistance. So, so when they come to a difficult concept or word, they just pass it by rather than work through it. Yeah, that's... It's a tragedy, and, and I, let's say that many of us have taken courses on how to read quickly, speed reading, um, you know, how to, especially if you're, um, you know, in some kind of an educational field, I mean, you've got to somehow get a lot of data quickly, and so you try to do that. Let me say, don't read the Bible quickly. I mean, you can read everything else quickly. Don't read the Bible quickly, and especially some of these uh, Pauline letters. Uh, Ephesians is one of them. Every letter is like a a weighty bomb. You have to stop, ask yourself what's meant by it. Don't go to the next word until you understand the last one. And when you do that, a whole world will open up to you, a world that you've never seen before. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us tomorrow as we continue our series, Empowered Living, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. One of our listeners wrote to say, this message captures the heart of our awesome God. Thank you so much for this truth, Pastor John. I love the passion you display in expounding God's word with truth and humility. Feedback like this lets us know that the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada are hitting the mark. With God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching and engagement using every effective medium at our disposal. Our special thanks to all those who listen, watch, read, and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment to Bible teaching is essential. Please continue to stand with us with your prayers and support. 
You can join us in this effort with your financial gift by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.